The Houses Movie Podcast is supported by listeners like you. Go to www.patreon.com slash Movie. There you can donate as little as a dollar a month and help us maintain our goal of keeping this show independent and free of advertising. I think the issue is ultimately, what are you selling in the end? You're selling creativity, raw creativity from talented people. Now... The problem has always been with the studios, although the beginning of the studios, the entrepreneurs who ran the studios were sort of creative guys. They would just take books and turn them into movies and do things like that. Suddenly all these corporations were coming in. They didn't know anything about the movie business. So they said, well, maybe we should hire kids from film schools. They supposedly know how to make films. So suddenly we could get jobs, which was a fantastic thing. But then the studios went back to saying, well, we don't trust you people and we think we know how to make movies. The studios change everything all the time and unfortunately they don't have any imagination and they don't have any talent. There was a good studio executive at Fox when they did Star Wars. He believed in me because he loved American Graffiti. He said, you're a talented guy, I'll do whatever you want to do. You never hear that today. But he said, you know, I don't understand what this thing is about big dogs flying spaceships around. It doesn't make any sense to me. Are you sure this is going to work? And and I yes. said, well, I know it's different, but, you know, I believe in it. It's my movie. Yeah. But you can't do that today. You just can't. And certain directors have gotten away with doing kind of crazy things, but they're like very few and far between. Yeah. And you kind of wonder how they got to do it. But if the studios keep doing the same cookie-cutter movie over and it's over It's going to be an implosion. And they cost a lot of money. Hello, everyone, and welcome to How Is This Movie? My name is Dana Buckler, and thank you for taking just a little time out of your day to listen. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at How Is This Movie. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash howisthismovie. You can always reach out to me with questions or comments at hitmpodcast at gmail.com. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave a review on whatever platform you choose to listen. In this episode, I will round up my conversation with Phil Giovanno. We will discuss the current landscape of Hollywood, including sequels, studio branding, the rise of video on demand, the impact of online piracy, and finally, we're going to ask the question, is there a silver lining in all of this? Phil, I look at 1999 as sort of that last year of of movies that, you know, we had a lot of original IPs that year. We had The Sixth Sense, you had The Matrix, a Blair Witch Project. I mean, I, there was a, just a ton of good movies that came out that year. You started to see a trend in more sequels. In 2001, you had the release of Spider-Man, you started to get the Lord of the Rings trilogy, uh, then you got the Matrix trilogy. Still, though, or, so original IPs coming out in the early 2000s. And you mentioned that studios, the more cost, the, the, the safer it is. And I'm wondering if you're able to pinpoint at what point we became remake and sequel dominant. You know, it's funny that you mentioned 1999. You know, that's the year Phantom Menace came out. And I think when George Lucas finally announced that he was bringing Star Wars back, and which he kind of sworn he never was going to do. And The Matrix breaks out that same year. And obviously Warner says, let's make more of these. You also had Toy Story 2 that year. You know, so you had a successful, you know, great original, but now you've got a very successful, it was the number three grossing film that year, Toy Story 2. I'm looking at right now. So you, again, I'm looking at The Mummy. We all know they made many sequels off of that. You know, Austin Powers, many sequels off of that. And I think that, you know, it's funny. You look at Star Wars and really, and it's ironic that here we are in, you know, 2015, 2016, and it's, this is more relevant than ever. It always has been 
kind of the bellwether movie of, uh, you know, for what we're talking about. Yep. The groundbreaking film that, that set the tone and paved the way for everything else. So you've got a huge effects movie, you know, that has comic book origins and its tone and execution. There's what, seven of them now and many more to come. And the rest of the world just finally caught up. The rest of the film world finally caught up to George Lucas and said, wait a second, we've spent all this money and all this marketing, all this time, all this energy creating a brand and then we drop it. Why are we making one-off products? Why aren't we continuing to monetize our brand? So they bring back Batman and they monetize him. They bring back Superman. They monetize that. Spider-Man starts, which really was the beginning of the Marvel run. And they are, they're like, and we're going to make sequels. You know, it's out of the gate. You know, they're kind of saying, look, the whole idea here is to create a brand and milk the brand. And what you had at the exact same time was the marketing divisions of these corporations becoming much, much, much more powerful and influ influential in what got made. Because when you're spending $100 million or $150 million, the marketing guys have to be behind your decision-making. Like they have to feel like they can sell it. If your marketing guy turns to you and says, great, you know, great, I'm glad you like that script. I'm glad you like that movie. I have no idea how I'm going to sell that. It's over. It's over. Okay. It's over. Because the head of the studio goes, whoa, wait a second here. You're telling me that you don't know how to... Yeah, I mean, it's great, but I get it. I mean, you know, maybe some awards or something, but man, that's a tough one. It's just pretty much over. You know, which is why The Revenant was independently financed. No studio head is reading that script and looking at that story and no head of marketing. I mean, now in retrospect, sure, but they're not, they're, you know, they're like, that is a rough one. That had to be made outside the system. Distributed within the system at the end of the day, but not financed within the system. So anyway, I think what you, what you saw was as costs grow, risk goes down, they decide, they say, Hey, wait a second. Look what George is doing all the way to the bank. Right. And why don't we do the same thing? And so between 99 and 2008, you basically just see it explode. I mean, I'm looking at here at, at 2008, you get the dark night. You get Iron Man, you get Indiana Jones, you got Madagascar 2. I mean, you've got the beginnings. It's, it's still going, you know, it's still growing, but you've got, you've got the beginnings of, I mean, look at this Iron Man. There's been three of them now, mm -hmm. right? Dark Knight. I don't even need to go into it. What Batman became. So, uh, Indiana Jones, they're talking about another one, you know, still now again, um, with the younger Indiana Jones. So you, you really do. Just see that it makes sense. It makes sense from a financial point of view. It makes sense from a marketing point of view. It's just a business. It just becomes a business where they want to create brands. Now, there is a question I'm going to have to follow up on that, on your on your last statement there about a business that just wants to create brands. But I, I we have to talk about the rise of streaming, Netflix, video on demand, how that essentially killed the video store and... And then I do have a follow-up question for that last statement you just made. So when did video on demand, when did streaming services come on your radar and how soon into it were you able to recognize that this is going to change the way the current, that the, the then current model 
was being used. You know, what, what I mean, I think that really in the last five years, you've seen video on demand kind of go from something that's kind of like, yeah, whatever, that's kind of weird and and odd to completely acceptable way to, you know, watch a movie uh, for the first time. Now, for me, I know that what changed that was the quality of VOD and Netflix. So original streaming and original VOD, a lot of times it wasn't 1080. It didn't look even as good as a regular DVD, let alone a Blu-ray. And so, you know, you really weren't getting a theatrical-like experience when you were watching Netflix streaming or uh, a VOD, say, off DirecTV or, or your cable box. As, as the bandwidth, I know this is like so weird, but as the bandwidth grew and as people were getting DSL and as people were able to get, a, you know, uh, upgrade their, their systems, you know, um, of distributing the, the films, technologically speaking, you got basically DVD, then Blu-ray quality movies through streaming and VOD. And, and really today, as we all know, Clicking from a network show to a Netflix show, you cannot tell the difference. You got to remember that was not the case three, four years ago. I was not big into Netflix streaming because it just looked so crappy. And now it's just, it's one-to-one. And iTunes also made a big difference there in that when you rented a movie, say from iTunes, and that when they bumped up to 1080, you were watching a movie at DVD slash Blu-ray quality, depending upon your system, and again, and the, you know, with with Dolby Surround and the whole nine yards, and you're kind of like, hey, I can get a movie in my house. I don't need to go to the video store. I don't need to even go to the movies for that matter. And so, you know, technology, the distribution of technology caught up with distribution. You now could have a really high quality theatrical like, depending upon your systems, experience at home. And and you know what else too? Young people as they got, you know. They don't really care if they watch it on their computer or watch it on their iPad, you know, and, and I watch kids like they're like, I'd rather watch it on my computer. Like they don't even have TVs. So even those issues of quality and being on a big screen and surround and blah, 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 they throw on earbuds and watch it on their computer and that's just fine. So now you've got the, the way you think of filmed entertainment, the way you think of long form narrative, let's call it, let alone TV. It's been kind of the same thing. It can be viewed anytime, anywhere on any device, um, it's not exclusive to a movie theater. Even the experience of what's special about a movie theater has been kind of degraded. You know, it's like, well, yeah, it's good. But then again, you know, I have to schlep over there and, you know, people are talking or they're on their phone or they're texting or they're doing this or kids are screwing around. So, hell, I'd rather watch it at home. You end up having the audience thinking of movies in a different way than they did even all the way back to the 80s and and the 90s when when there was still something unique and special and exclusive about getting to a theater. That exclusivity, unless you're making $250 million epics that can, should be seen in IMAX that now have Atmos surround that are, you know, they're just jacking it up bigger and bigger and bigger. Why? Because... You got to get them out of the house somehow or else they'll just take it on VOD. Why go? Why go? That, you know, is a real problem uh, for anything but gigantic studio releases. All right. So then I've got two questions here. So the first one is, are the studios sort of adapting the same model 
that we talked about towards the beginning of this episode when it came to the introduction of home video in the 80s. It's, you know, why do we spend this money on marketing when we can just put it in a VOD release and sell it in VOD and, and make make our money back? Are they just, is that sort of the same model that's being used today for some theatrical, excuse me, for some movies? The, just the studio will just release it VOD versus a theatrical release? No question. I mean, I, I think that the studios, when we talk about kind of the big five or six, they are making fewer movies and they're being much more careful about what movies they make so that they, they, they prefer not to fall into that into that category because the costs of even a low-end studio movie don't get covered by VOD. So, you you know, if you're at $25 million or you know, which, which studios really rarely even make movies at, at that level, you know? So if you're talking, gosh, you know, really 50, 60, $70 million movies, those are really, they're kind of like serious dramatic films. They're going to, they're going to go make. So, um, with some stars. So, you know, mainstream movies, they're usually a hundred million or more. So the VOD option for those is just not viable financially. What you're really talking about is films that get independently made, through various financing entities, through foreign pre-sales, through all kinds of different ways. And those are the ones when you click on, you know, I have DirecTVs. When you click on the VOD of DirecTV and there's 12 titles you've never heard of, but with big names, big name actors. You're like, wow, look at all these stars. You know, as they put the names right up there next to the title, obviously. You say to yourself, wow, look at all these. Those, generally speaking, they're not studio pictures that went to VOD. They were independently financed movies that that didn't get a theatrical where the distributors out there um just said we don't think we're going to make our money back uh and those are the ones where they've kept the cost down usually 10 and below usually and uh for some action films it might be a little bit higher because they can get more money in foreign pre-sales so they can get the budgets a little bit higher maybe up to 20 maybe but that's a really expensive uh independently financed movie so those go vod you know, and and you see a lot of those now, particularly in the action world. You know, you, you'll, you'll look and say, I mean, you know, so many of those with Bruce Willis, right? I mean, there's so many of those movies. You go, wow, Bruce, I mean, Bruce Willis, how many movies must he make a year? Well, he is a busy guy. I was going to say, you've probably just answered a, a lingering question that a lot of my listeners have, and is how many movies does Nicolas Cage make in a year? <laughs> so. It's got to be four or five. And, you know, the, the thing is, is that is that and those are the movies that we're talking about where – he, there's some sort of computer model out there where if you get Nick in a movie and, and it's of a certain genre, kind of action thriller, usually involving him saving a child, uh, you will, uh, equal X amount of dollars worldwide, you know, from all the territories you release it in, whether, and, and some you might even put it in theaters and some you might just go VOD. It's different for every territory like that. Those movies might get a release in Czechoslovakia for, you know, I mean, it's weird. There's different models. They all have worked out. And the money trickles in, and by the time you're done, if it costs you 15 to make, you're going to make 25. And you know, a $10 million profit is nothing to sneeze at for an independent financer. That's amazing. So if you can look at five to 10 million per pop and you can make five of those, why not? Why not? I mean, we all kind of chuckle, but the truth is you can make a lot of money through what? Volume. And that's what we were talking about earlier in this conversation is if you keep costs down and volume up and you just and you distribute worldwide, which technology allows you to do in a way that's so much cheaper than when you used to have to ship prints all over the world. Now you hit a button, you hit a button and you have worldwide distribution. Right. And literally 
the second you send that file out, it is in the world, available to billions of people on the same day. And, and that can make you money, just not the two, three hundred, five hundred billion dollars that the studios are looking for. But if you're interested in making a few million dollars here and there, and you can do that five, ten times a year, and you're making 10, 15 million in profit a year, uh, I wouldn't mind that. I wouldn't mind collecting $10 million a year with a bunch of Nick Cage movies. I mean, it's not, you know, so they're kind of laughing all the way to the bank if you think about it. But just compared to spending $250 million on a Batman movie, you, you know, it, it, it seems, it seems funny. But in fact, again, it's not. Now I've got, uh, does that make sense? Does it, that make no, sense? it makes, no, it makes perfect sense. It got yeah, perfect sense. It's, it's an amazing business. It's an amazing business if you can get into it. Yeah. You know, I've, I've actually met with a guy, with the guy, who's, I think, made the last five or six Nick Cage movies in a row. He couldn't be happier that worldwide they make money. So he's doing great. Where do you see the future of the theatrical experience going? We've talked about how easy it is for – we just talked about the Nick Cage model. We've talked about video on demand. We've talked about the fact that I have two laptops in front of me and a TV, and I can watch three different things at the same time from three different sources. Where I, I'm, I'm not a fan of going to the movies. Everybody who knows me knows they think it's the irony of the fact that I host a movie podcast and, <laughs> and don't go to the movies. Uh, it, 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 I'm always reminded of that. Where I, is the I theatrical the, experience? I, I get where you're coming from. Seriously, Dana. Whenever you have a lock on anything, you get lazy. It's human nature. When you have a monopoly and no one's challenging you, why improve? Why get better? It's, it's very, very, very like what, you know, one of the geniuses of Steve Jobs was that he made great products and then said not good enough and kept going. That's so unusual. It's, 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 it's so the opposite of human nature. Human nature is when you hit, when you're, when you, when you got a lock, you sit on it. That's what movie theaters have done, okay? They had a lock for all those years. The only way to see a movie was in a movie theater. And yeah, they added stadium seating. That didn't make movies better. They added cup holders. That didn't make it better. In fact, the screens got smaller. They made multiplexes. They shoved us into these little crappy theater. They made the movie-going experience inferior as time went on. And then technology catches up. And suddenly you can watch it at home on a DVD or you can watch it on, remember when you used to wait for HBO to run it? Or then you could, whoa, now you can download it or hell, now you can steal it, you know, and not pay for it at all. And it goes on and on to where suddenly they're challenged and they're not happy about it. And they're doing everything they can to maintain their monopoly and fighting and threatening. I mean, God forbid anybody says, hey, we're going to move up the DVD window or the or the cable window. They flip out. We won't take your movies. We won't run your film. We won't support you. It's a monopoly. I mean, I can't believe that that it's even legal, quite frankly, that they, that, you know, that they that they should be able to make those threats. But they do. It would seem antitrust would not allow it. But anyway, they do. And they've so far stopped day and date. That's why they've stopped day and date. Theaters are the reason day and date has been stopped. So, Theaters are fighting to maintain their little monopoly. But at the same time, they recognize the very serious threat. Attendance is down every year. The only reason box office goes up every year is that the co- they, they raise ticket prices. It's a joke. So they say, well, ticket prices are better than last year. That's because they raised them, not because more people are going. It's just, a, it's just a scam to make it look like 
you know, uh, more people are going to the movies, but they're not. So what are they going to do? So to answer your question, what are they going to do? They got to make it bigger again. They got to make it better. They've got to have better sound. They got to better screens. That this is why IMAX is, is such a successful marketing tool. I mean, you see it now on every ad and in IMAX and hell 70 millimeter, right? I mean, that's, you know, shot in IMAX. Uh, Christopher Nolan has made a big, big deal out of that. And it's smart. It's super smart because it makes the viewer feel, the audience feel like they're going to go see something special. They're going to go see something they can't see at home. They can't see on VOD. They can't see on their iPhone. They got to go to the theater to experience it that way. 3D was also an attempt at that. I think we all know what 3D is and 3D is really a giant scam to make you pay more when you go, you know, it's just to make you pay double. Nothing shot in 3D. They farm it all out to India and China and then they cut up the movie to make it look like it was 3D when it never really was. And most filmmakers don't even really like 3D. I mean, you can hear even, even, uh, you know, JJ Abrams, you know, came out and said, I don't really dig 3D and don't really care for it. And, you know, but then he pumped Star Wars for looking good in 3D <laughs> because it's a giant, it, it, it's, it's a giant monetary stream. They, they need these extras. They need 3D. They need IMAX. They need these things to try to get you back into the theater, which they sat on for 50 years and did nothing. Actually, not only to improve it, they made it worse. Theaters got worse. And only because of home entertainment has theaters owners suddenly said, ah, damn it. We have to make this better. You know, we have like we have an, a thing called IPIC near us, which is this really plushy, like, you know, you, the, the chairs go back like lazy boys and they're all velvety and they have people bring you your sodas and food. And, it, you know, and it costs double or triple, you know, like, you know, every six months or so, my wife and I will splurge and go just because, you know, they give a little blankie and a pillow. It's crazy, but it's really, really interesting because super high quality picture and sound, blah, blah, blah. But it does make you feel like you're getting an experience that isn't like home. Even though you could be laying in your bed, those seats are so ridiculous. But it, it does, it does make you feel like us feel like we're doing, we're treating ourselves. You know what I mean? Like, like, you know, it's like a, a spa experience at the movies. It's, it's silly. But whereas if we go to the local arc light, which by the way, here in LA used to be like Arclight. Whoa, Arclight was the really special. You go, you're in these stiff chair, you sit there, it's still everyone's like screwing around in the theater and it's the, it's just another kind of average to crappy movie experience to be honest with you. And and that's why you don't go and that's why a lot of people don't go and that's why, you know, other than kids that want to get out of the house, it's it's really not that special anymore. And that's just such a shame. But they sat on their lead, and that's that's one of the reasons why they're in the state they're in. The future is for movies is just going to be bigger, louder, bigger, louder, bigger, louder. That's the future for theatrical movies. I hate to say it, it's it you know oh well, wait a second there will always be you know interesting independent movies that'll get out there. There will always be somebody who's willing to take a shot and put you know um, put put spotlight out. I mean there are. There will. Every year I'll be proven wrong by five movies. Okay? Every year, four or five movies will prove me wrong. But the other hundred, <laughs> you know, the other, and I think there's going to be fewer and fewer studio releases. I mean, if I was just a business, a businessman running a CEO of Time Warner, I'd be like, hey, why don't we just make 10 of these or eight of these and just put all our time and effort and marketing into those eight, make them great and call it a day. Why are we making 20 of these? Because 
ultimately the portion, I mean, people, Disney's probably the number one branding marketing machine in the world today, right? I mean, it's just Disney, period. Then add on to that, they have Pixar, Marvel, Star Wars now. They own ILM. I mean, they own the best effects house in the, like now if you want to get the best effects in the world, you got to go to Disney. It's, it's crazy what they've done. And they also just have the Disney brand. Their filmed entertainment is 14% of their income. It, that, that doesn't even seem to make sense, but it's just 14% unbelievable. 14% filmed entertainment. Not, not, not TV, but filmed entertainment. That includes all those brands. So you can see why they just say, we're going to make Marvel movies. We're going to make Star Wars movies. We're going to make Pixar movies. And we're going to make Disney movies. Moving on. By the way, that from a business perspective, it's quite brilliant. And I think the Disney model, in fact, I don't think, I know. You can read this on a weekly basis and Forbes and Fortune and the Wall Street Journal, these other studios, and that studios, because remember, they're owned by corporations. These other corporations would love to have that model. Yeah. Would love it. And that's why, you know, Viacom is struggling because MTV was like a big brand. It's not anymore. You know, they've lost their brands. And, and Paramount doesn't really, Paramount, who's owned by Viacom, doesn't really have brands. They have Mission Impossible. They'd love to get Indiana Jones going again. That was a brand they have. Sony's trying to get their brands going. Thus, Ghostbusters, the female Ghostbusters. You know, so Tom Rothman gets over there and his first order of business is create brands, rejuvenate. They got to rejuvenate um, Spider-Man. So they allow Marvel to slip Spider-Man right into this upcoming movie of theirs. I think the Civil War movie. They, I think he's in there because they need to get their brand pumped up again. They got to get Ghostbusters pumped up again. They're going to, they're looking for brands big time. And, and the branding, big branded movie making. When Jurassic Park, who had been sat dormant for all those years, comes out, is the number one movie up until Star Wars blows it out. Like it, that says it all. Like they're just like, Universal was like, oh my God, there's the ticket. And yes, there'll be family films, there'll be comedy films, and there'll be, but they're, but it's really going to be about, Branding. When you when you make a Minions movie, man, you are milking the brand. Are you kidding me? They don't. Those little guys like going. The Minions deserved a movie. Of course they did because they're a part of the brand. And we're just going to see more and more and more of that. And it makes sense because it cuts through the public consciousness. It's easier to market. The internet seems to to love it. And uh, that's that's where that's where that's where theatrical movie making is going. Sorry for that very no. long-winded answer, but I really, that's just the way of the world. You no, know? no, that's perfect. I couldn't call the title of this reoccurring series The Business of Film without touching on something. And I'm going to just give you a very quick story to where this came on my radar. Uh, a few weeks ago when the movie Deadpool was released, I, mean, I work a job that usually takes me into about 10 o'clock on Friday nights. I worked with a gentleman. The next day, we came to work. He said, hey, I saw Deadpool last night. I'm like, well, how did you see Deadpool last night? We didn't get out of work till 11 o'clock at night. So I watched it at home. I said, well, what do you mean you watched it at home? I mean, I knew what he meant, obviously. I mean, I, I mean, and it just occurred. I said, well, how was the quality? He goes, it was pretty, it was a pretty good quality. And the movie just came out yesterday. And so, of course, I'm talking about online piracy. And you can talk about examples of last year's or the year before the Expendables 3 was leaked 
three weeks ahead of its theatrical release. The Hateful Eight was released. The Revenant was released. All these were released ahead of their time. Where do you stand? I I mean, I'm I'm sure I know how you stand. What is your opinion on online piracy, and is it ever going to go away? Here's the the real shame, from my perspective, about online piracy is that it limits the financier's appetite for Internet distribution. So what I'm going to is I'm excited about the day – that we call it VOD, which I hope that term disappears, and that we're just looking at movies. We call them movies, or we call them films. We call them long-form storytelling, whatever you want, but it's not just some crappy VOD, straight-to-video. You know, at least Netflix now doesn't have quality work that that phrase, you know, oh, it's a Netflix film, that they, they're starting to create a brand for themselves. What I'm saying is, is that direct internet distribution so that when a movie gets released whether it's from a major or it doesn't even matter who it's from because you know the truth of the matter is the viewer doesn't give a crap who releases their entertainment they don't care if it's warners or paramount or disney disney maybe families care about disney and that's why they're such a strong brand but so disney fox like really you go to some kid in high school and say hey are you gonna go see the next fox film like what are you talking about they don't care. They don't know. They just go see the next X-Men film. They don't know that it's Fox. So, but those people that finance production are really afraid of the internet. Why? Piracy. They're really afraid that if their product is, is straight up on the internet, it'll just be copied and stolen and downloaded and screen grabbed and all the different ways that you can, that you can steal rather than pay for entertainment. They're like, well, and I've had these conversations with people. I say, well, you know, we could charge, you know, five bucks a pop for our movie, but the truth of the matter is these kids can just take it. They're not going to pay the five bucks. As soon as we make it, you know, the encryption necessary that, you know, there's just too many ways to steal, um, if you want to call it that, filmed entertainment on the internet. And until that's somehow figured out, and again, I'm not, I don't write code, you know, so I don't know. It seems to me that there's there's always going to be someone writing code ahead of the guy who wrote the code to stop the code from stealing the code. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, I, I guess unless it's unless, I guess unless it's on an encrypted iPhone and then no one's stealing anything. <laughs> but uh, but right, but see, that's kind of interesting though when you think about it that they've somehow figured out. Now, granted, it's within hardware; it's not internet based. And and probably if it was about hacking iCloud, it would be a lot easier for them. To, I I don't know, but the thing still is. Although I guess anyway, I'm sorry. I'm about I was about to get out of the FBI case, but it really is all about stealing stuff through technology, getting information through technology. In this case, what we're talking about is movies. So the real problem for me is not oh the studios are losing this income due to piracy, or oh you know uh, it's destroying. The film business. I don't believe that. It hasn't. It's not gonna. The the percentage of people doing it is not, it's just not high enough to really, really dent the worldwide income that these companies can generate. If it was, it would have done it by now. Do you know what I mean? If it really, if it was going to take down the business to where essentially, you know what, too late, it's all free. And, and even music. I mean, as easy as it is, look at music. Music's the easiest thing to steal because the files are so small and to share. But still, you know, the music business exists. Does it, is it, as, does it make as much money as it used to? No. 
That's that's more the fact that you can get songs all a carte now rather than albums. If you still could only get songs through albums, the movie business, the music business would make more money. But once they went all a carte, that changed everything. So it's also part of their business model change, not just piracy. I think that in the movie business case, the real problem is we're going to have a hard time making internet distribution. Not I'm not talking about through your cable box. I'm not talking about through your your you know direct TV and VOD. I'm talking about literally the internet, where I literally can go and get my get my movie on Friday night from a serious filmmaker where they're not worried about piracy killing the opportunity for them to make their money back. And that's where, where piracy bothers me or concerns me is, is in that I think it's part, of, it's in the way of the evolution of distribution. And that's not good. That's the part selfishly, I suppose you could say, since I'm not on the business end of studio filmmaking, uh, that I think that piracy is a problem. And I think that's the real bummer for people who want more interesting movies, a wider breadth of movies, different movies, uh, you know, that I think are in our future through the internet. But piracy is going to be a problem, and that's that's the biggest issue I see. We've talked about a lot. We've covered three decades. We've talked a, and the listener may come away from if they were to stop listening right now, they may come away with the idea that all is not good and all is not great, and we're doomed when it comes to you know the big theatrical releases and and I like to say the rinse and repeat model. But I like to think that there is a silver lining in in all of this, and you just touched on it with internet distribution and that is someone like myself someone like yourself somebody who loves interesting challenging movies challenging content you know don't get me wrong i like the big tentpole movies i love star sure. wars sure but i i also love to be in fully engaged and immersed in stories that i i don't know and there is a silver lining i i imagine and please please explain to the listeners who, who may be listening right now and feeling a little doom and gloom yeah no i don't think that it's all all doom and gloom for filmmakers, for storytelling uh, at all. In, in fact, I think it's more wide open and in many ways more exciting than it's ever been because there's a lot of talk about is the internet really democratic or not? And I don't know about any of that. But what I do know is the opportunity to get your work to billions of people with a single click now exists. And, and at high resolution, with great sound, Great picture. And, you know, that then can be streamed right to your giant TV if you want to look at on that instead of your computer at a high quality. That's really exciting. And I think that is where we'll be 10, 15, 20, however long it takes for it to get sorted out with all the issues that we've discussed. But that's where you're going to find the most interesting filmmaking in general. Um, will it be the most expensive filmmaking? No. Will it be you know, $200 million budgets? Will it be super high effects driven work? Probably not, although that's going to get cheaper and easier too. And and I think that young people coming up are going to see that as a real opportunity as opposed to, oh, too bad I didn't make it in the big leagues and now I've got to do it here on the internet and no one's going to see it. And how, you know, I don't, I think that's all going to change. My little kids, I have these, I have little kids right now. They don't even want to turn the TV on. They want to watch everything on an iPad, everything. They don't care. Yeah. And they go to the movies and they like the movies. You know, we take them to the movies, but they're just happy watching on the couch on an iPad. They, they, they love it. In fact, they love the interactivity. They love to be able to control it. That's, that's the next generation of 
viewers. You know, I grew up, it was a movie was in a movie theater. They've grown up, they tap a square on an iPad and it becomes a movie and they love it. They love the choice. They love the interactivity. And I think it's cool too, because I've always believed that the real reason to make movies, when you really distill it down, is to tell long form stories that are interesting and entertaining and exciting and fresh and new. And I suppose you could say nothing's new under the sun, but you know what I mean. It's it's not just a rehash. It's not a rinse repeat like you just said. I mean, I was looking the other day, there's 161 sequels <laughs> being prepared in Hollywood right now. 161. You know, these companies are announcing movies 10 years in advance. You know, the Marvel Slate 3 or whatever the hell they call it. And that's fine. And that's fine. There's there's always, there's room for that. And then some of them will be great and some of them won't. And, and you know, we'll go or we won't. But there is a huge opportunity out there for all kinds of filmmakers in all kinds of languages and all kinds of cultures and all kinds of stories to reach an audience. And, and we just have just barely touched the tip of the iceberg in that way. Um, and, and I, and I think over time, that's going to become the new way of distributing to an audience that is, doesn't have the chokehold, the chokehold of these studios, the chokehold of needing millions of dollars. You know, that's the other thing. It's like, you know, my God, what are we at now? Um, it costs, uh, the average movie today is $120 million and worldwide for a tent pool, $200 million in marketing. It's crazy. It's crazy. So the internet's going to be the answer. It's just going to take a little bit of time. It's interesting just to comment on what you just said there, especially you, you made the, the announcement about, uh, or you said that Marvel had made the announcement, you know, they're, their their next lineup of films, which is going to take us into 2026. And I'm not somebody who's anti-Marvel or anti-comic book films. I'm somebody who chooses not to see them in the theater. I think we we pretty much figured out why I don't see those movies in the theater. And eventually, I believe that comic book bubble is going to burst. At some point, the numbers are going to start to go down. They, they, it's inevitable. They just can't. I mean, it could take 20 years. And I think people will seek out content, just like you described. They're going to you can only see Captain America save, you know, the city a hundred times before you're like, you know what? I think I need to watch something else. I need to watch something right. different. I need my mind to be stimulated again. And I think it's exciting where we're heading. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, to to every action, there's an opposite and equal reaction. I mean, it's just that, that ultimately the pendulum will swing. It always has and it always will. There was a time when the Western was – all they made. The Western was, was their bread and butter in the movie business. And then it died. And, you know, we'll see how long the run of computer generated entertainment, because it's really mostly what it is. What you're really talking about at the end of the day is, is, you know, com- computer generated imagery in, you know, kind of with comic book characters that just gets bigger and wilder and more characters and more kind of, uh, I guess, scale. But, we, you know, how long that pendulum swings that way, and if it ever does swing back, I mean, uh, the laws of nature says, says it will. <laughs> we just don't know how long, and that, you know, and I, and I think that's, that's fine. Like, there's nothing wrong at all with that entertainment. It's, it's fun for a lot, a lot of people, and worldwide. And it does keep the movie business grinding forward. 
but if it's to the exclusion of other kinds of stories, you know, you really look at the drama, the, the, the studio drama, a dramatic story made and distributed by a major studio today. Boy, that is an endangered species. Yeah. So someone's going to fill that void. And it can't be $150 million revenants, right? Because those are one-offs, right? I'm like, that's not what we're talking about. You know, as amazing as that movie was, it's a super, super expensive movie to make. And so there will be other kinds of stories, you know, made by other kinds of filmmakers that can do it due to the technology out there on a budget. And there's going to be actors that are going to be willing to do it for less. And there's going to be, that's the other thing is that if there's one thing that's probably for, for a while that's going to happen, and this did happen in music is people will make less money because until the internet catches up with the financial model, there will be less money to be made, but there will be, it'll be easier to make and tell your story. So, you know, I do think that we're in a real, we're just in a huge transition. We're kind of in the, where we're at right now, I think, is we're kind of at like the peak of filmmaking extravagance on one end and kind of a vacuum on the other end of the pendulum. You know, really, you know, the, the, on, on lower budget um, or even forget about budget, just the, the more, um, I would just say more reality-based storytelling, there's, there's just, you know, there's kind of a, a, a vacuum on that end. But that's going to get filled in and TV has done that quite a bit. Television is doing that. You know, we'll just see if if TV becomes a distribution format or if, you know, uh, the Netflix and the Amazons. You know, one thing that's really interesting is that the technology companies out there that are awash with billions and billions of dollars of cash have yet to step into this arena in a real way. You're seeing it now. I mean, uh, apparently Apple Music is creating a, a, a series with, you know, Dr. Dre to help support their product. It'll be exclusive to Apple Music. That's really interesting because... What that's basically, you know, internet distribution through Apple of original programming. And it just means you have to have the subscription to Apple Music to watch it. So you're going to, you know, you're going to see more and more of that where corporations, particularly technology corporations want and Facebook, you know, want to drive eyeballs to their platform. And if they can create content that does that, they'll do it. They have the money to do it. And they have the distribution system. Apple has iTunes. Facebook has their Facebook platform. Netflix and Amazon are already doing it. I mean, Amazon, what's Amazon making TV shows for? Why? Why? People are watching them. (laughs) Exactly. And it drives viewers to their platform. And what do they do when they're there? They buy stuff or whatever, whatever gigantic plan Jeff Bezos has. They, you know, these guys are really, really smart in relation and they have yet to really, really barely tip their toe into the entertainment world and how entertainment, proprietary entertainment, original entertainment will drive people to their thing, whatever it is. And you're going to see video game companies the same way. You're going to see content get driven on the internet and in unusual ways that aren't just about, you know, click on this and watch a movie. It's going to be associated with companies that can also finance them and then support them and market them. And imagine if Facebook made a movie and they just marketed it through Facebook only. I think they'd reach a lot of people. I'm telling you right now, they, I just started thinking about it. They, you could only watch it on Facebook. Yep. They would, of course, sell some advertising laced throughout the entire film. That No, I mean, that's brilliant. Phil, I mean, clearly there's, there's, a, there's a bright future ahead. 
and, mm. and, and an interesting one. And, and you're right. We're, we're probably in one of the biggest transition periods of any generation when it comes to filmmaking. So it's, mm. I, I look at it as, I mean, when, when I came up with the idea and wanted to have, have you on here to discuss this, I knew we were going to be talking about a lot of this. Some would construe it as negative aspects of, of Hollywood and, and, you know, that, that, you know, money drives everything. But I wanted to come out of this episode feeling better about the whole picture. And I do. And I, I really appreciate you taking the time to really sort of lay out the entire foundation of the past 30, 40 years. And I know I look at the next 10, 20 years actually very eagerly and very excited about where we're heading. So so thank you so much for being on here. And any closing thoughts? Yeah, no, I, I, I do I do think that there's really two sides to to what we're talking about here. One is, you know, kind of the corporate major studio Hollywood distribution side of things. And and for them, the costs are what they are to the point where that dictates what they can make and make their money back. That's the game they're in. The other side we're talking about here is just filmmaking and storytelling. So if you're if you're gonna talk about a studio side of things, yeah, I think it's I think it's getting more limited. If you're gonna talk about filmmaking and storytelling and distribution worldwide, I think it's wide open. I think it's it's never I mean if I had made, I made a lot of short films in, in the 80s, showed them to my family and friends in my living room. That was my distribution model. I had a projector and I projected it on a little screen and that was the end of that. Today, I could put those on YouTube and they'd be available to the world. The world, my work, before I even went to film school, I had made 20 shorts. All of them could have been on YouTube right now. And back then, they sat in little reels and cans in my closet. So you, you know, so really think about that. I mean, the, the way things have changed in the past, you know, 30, 40 years to where you couldn't get anyone to see your stuff, period. Now, I mean, you'd walk around with a VHS tape in your hand and hand it to people. That was your best shot. Now, think of all these filmmakers that are getting breaks and chances and opportunities because of the internet. It's, the opportunities are massive. It's just the business model hasn't quite caught up yet. But the opportunity today, not 10 years from now or 20 years from now, to be seen and noticed and get a chance is so, so amazing. It's, it's, it's so wide open. It's very, very positive. Clearly, there's going to be more for us to discuss uh, down, down the road and in the future. So uh, I look forward to having you back on. And, and thank you so much. And for those listening, I have put a link for Phil's website, uh, in the show notes, so you can uh, certainly check out. Uh, I know you, Phil. You said you got a lot of your works on there, a lot of the videos. Uh, I think you said that there's a um, a widescreen version of Entropy on there on there. So so there's a lot of really awesome things you can check out on his website. In part four of the business of film, I will be joined by Jim Hemphill for an in-depth look of what it's like to make an independent film in today's system. We will talk about everything from getting financed to the film festival circuit to landing distribution. My name is Dana Buckler, and thank you so much for listening.